So this morning, I want us to come to this passage and uh, this imp- really important origin story and, and approach it by asking and answering four questions. We want to know what this origin story tells us about God, what it tells us about Mary, what it tells us about Jesus, and most importantly, at the end, we want to ask, so what? What does it tell us? How does it apply to us? So we're going to start with God. What does this origin story teach us about God? And I would suggest there's three things in these verses. There's more, but three that I want to highlight specifically. The first being that as you read this passage, you can't help but notice that the entire Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are invested in our redemption and in the restoration of the world. If you look at verse 26, it begins with the Father initiating the action. He sends Gabriel to Mary to make the announcement. In verse 35, it's God the Holy Spirit who powerfully brings about the new life in her womb. And that new life is identified as the divine Son, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. In verse 35, the angel answers her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So the very first thing we see in this passage is that the entirety of the Godhead is invested in our salvation and in the restoration of this fallen creation. We also see that God does the impossible to fulfill his promises and bring about his sovereign will. You know, last week, with the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah, we made the observation, rightly so, that that conception was miraculous because uh, from a human perspective, old women don't get pregnant, right? That, that, that just doesn't happen in our world, but it did with her. But now in this passage, we better understand why God chose old, past her prime, Elizabeth to be the mother of John the baptizer. Her pregnancy, Elizabeth, was a living object lesson. She was a sign meant to encourage Mary, who was about to participate in an even bigger, more miraculous event. Gabriel is reasoning with Mary by using the lesser to the greater perspective. If God can do this with Elizabeth, he can do it with you. So he says, behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. This is the sixth month for her who is called barren. And then underline verse 27, for nothing will be impossible with God. This God, the Godhead invested in our salvation and the restoration of the world will do whatever is necessary to bring it about even doing the impossible. And then thirdly, we notice that as God does this and he works and he does the impossible, he fulfills these purposes through humble, available, unpretentious people. Now, after 400 years of silence, God moves miraculously to fulfill his promises, to carry out his sovereign will. And what is notable is that he does not go to Jerusalem and engage the power and the authority is there. His work does not come to the grandeur of the temple and the priestly class and the ruling class and the wealthy. Instead, he does it by choosing a carpenter and a poor young teenager from a small backwater town. I mean, this is the town that 
Nathaniel in John 1, as, he, as, Jesus was, as he was told that Jesus is the Messiah, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And it gives you some perspective. As, as Kent Hughes writes, Mary was a nobody and a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. And that pretty much summarizes it. She was a nobody in the middle of nowhere from a nothing town. Yet, church, isn't that what God does throughout the scriptures? Those that the world views as unimportant or unremarkable, God uses to do the important and the remarkable. God more often does amazing things through the nobodies of this world than he does the somebodies that our culture puts up on a pedestal and idolizes. So we learn some things about God in this passage. We also learn some things about Mary, little Mary. First of all, Mary was a young, normal, teenage girl living a young, normal, teenage, 4 BC life. That's what she was. She was a virgin, verse 27, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Her name is unremarkable. A third of the women in Palestine were called Mary. And here's what we know about her. She was probably between the ages of 12 and 15 years old. So lady, young, young ladies, those of you who are freshmen, sophomores, she was your age. And, and she's been betrothed. And, uh, and what's occurred is she has had her first menstrual cycle, to be blunt. She can now have children. And so her parents, as was the custom of that day, have arranged a marriage with a suitable man who can be her husband. The, the bride price has been paid by the husband's family to the bride's family. They are now, under law, officially married, but this betrothal period will last one year. It gives the two families time to kind of adjust to the new reality. Mary's family is going to lose a worker or agrarian. Somebody was useful and important for the farm and for survival. The other family is about to, to bring another person in, or, or Joseph may even leave that family and start his own home. And so the families are given a year to adjust and a year to get their wedding venue and line up the photographer and the videographer and the caterer, and you, you get the idea. They're getting the wedding ready. And so she is a normal young woman of that age. Nothing remarkable. This was the normal trajectory of every girl in that society. She was likely illiterate. Most were. She would have memorized portions of the Old Testament because she had learned them in the synagogue, but they didn't have books. She didn't read. She was betrothed. She was normal. She was a virgin. She was saving herself for her husband. And he came to her, Gabriel, and said, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. This, this, this moment is known as, as the, the Annunciation of Jesus. Last week, the chapter was the Annunciation of John. This is the Annunciation of Jesus. And it's been the, the motivation behind all kinds of great artwork through the centuries. For example, this is Leonardo da Vinci's rendering of this meeting between Mary and the, the, the angel Gabriel. This is another one from the Renaissance, Luca Giordano, and his imagination of, of how this went. 
um, beautiful paintings and totally disconnected from reality. Okay? Uh, Nazareth and its people did not live as nicely as portrayed there by Leonardo da Vinci. There were no white marbled buildings. Mary was not, you know, sitting in fine silks at a table with white, ivory, creamy, clean skin. Nazareth was dirty. It was filled with Gentiles and Romans. It was known for its corruption. It was off the main highways, stuck behind a bunch of hills in a little valley, and the people struggled to survive. They were of the house of David. They, they were typically married inside the clan so that the land stayed within the clan, right? This is who she is. She was, here's, here's who Mary was. She was a peasant girl. She was an illiterate, barely able to now conceive children, peasant girl. That's who Mary was. No fine robes. No creamy skin, no white marbled homes at all. I kind of like this painting a little better. This is Dante Rossetti. Now, it's still a little too fine, the homes. I mean, they lived in kind of glorified huts in a lot of ways. Um, But what I like about this picture is look at her face. Look at her eyes. What Rossetti does is Rossetti captures, I think, what was going on inside of Mary's mind and her heart. I mean, an angel shows up all of a sudden. As Luther believed, she was likely doing her chores. Because throughout the Old Testament, what you find is that the the angels show up at work. So fellas, ladies, you know, at Harris, boom, he's there. You're working, you're doing your work, and all of a sudden, here's this magnificent angel. What would that do to you? I know what it would do to me. It would freak me out. And I would be confused. And you see this in the eyes of Mary in this painting. Verse 29 captures it. She was greatly troubled. In other words, she was freaked out. She was anxious. She was like, what is going on here? You know, her amygdala was firing a thousand miles an hour, right? And she then says to him, and, and she's trying to discern, she's trying to figure out what sort of greeting this might be. Mary. Just like eating, I mean, teenagers, how would you respond if all of a sudden, I mean, you know, you're out, you know, you're, you're mowing the grass, and an angel pops up and says, hi there, you're going to have a baby. <laughs> how, how do you think you'd take that? That's how Mary would take it. Second thing I want you to realize is that Mary is the receiver, not the reservoir of God's grace. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found, this is a passive verb, you have found favor with God. In other words, she did not earn that favor, that grace, she received it. Some of you, you have been taught to pray to Mary as a dispenser of God's grace, that if you you can go through Mary to have God pour out his grace upon you, and you've been taught perhaps that she was a perpetual virgin, who was free of original sin, will know a couple of things. First of all, those ideas came about during the darkness and the ignorance of the medieval ages from the imaginations of men. And secondly, know this, if you take your Bible and you read every single word from the opening chapter of the Scriptures to the very end, you will find not one hint of those ideas in the Scriptures. Not one. Hear me clearly. 
Mary was a sinner just like the rest of us. She needed a Savior just like we do. But she found that God is a God of grace. And he poured his grace out upon her. As Martin Luther summarized this verse, he says, Oh, Mary, you are blessed. You have a gracious God. No woman has ever lived on earth to whom God has shown such grace. Mary, simple young teenage girl who is the receiver, not the repository of God's grace. And thirdly, has a pregnancy that is now supernaturally conceived and spiritually necessary. You know, verse 31 says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since, you, since I am a virgin? You know, if you think back to last week, when Gabriel was taught, told that his wife is going to have a baby, he responded with doubt, questions that were doubtful in origin. Mary doesn't do this. Unlike Zechariah the priest who questions Gabriel, Mary the peasant girl, she believes the word from God. But then naturally, she's curious. She, she wants to know, how is this going to happen? Because I'm a virgin who's been betrothed to Joseph. And the angel's answer is important. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Every, every Hebrew raised in the Old Testament scriptures would recognize this reference that Gabriel was giving. This goes all the way back to the opening verses of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is what Gabriel says to her. The power of the Most High will hover over you. In other words, he's telling her that what God is about to do in her life is what he did at the beginning of time. He's going to create life in a powerful, miraculous way. And this is a necessity. The virgin birth is a necessary Christian doctrine. There are those who say, you know, it's not all that important to believe that Mary was a virgin. I mean, after all, that's kind of fantastical, and it's not indispensable. But I would suggest that's not accurate, because verse 35 says, The child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Church, only God can satisfy God's judgment and wrath towards our sins. And that's why we, we have the need for God to take on flesh. That's what we call the incarnation. God has to take on flesh, live a perfect human life in order to pay the penalty of humanity's sin. He had to enter into our life, our junk, this fallen world to accomplish this. But taking on human flesh through normal conception would have submitted Jesus to the natural sin and the corruption that we experience as Adam's natural progeny. His birth had to be supernatural. By necessity, his conception needed to be supernatural so that Jesus could be called holy in the fullest sense of that word and to be fully qualified to stand in our place as the perfect 
innocent, sinless Lamb of God who would pay for our sins. So Mary, this passage teaches us, she was a young teenage girl who experienced an incredible manifestation of God's grace, who was the first and the only to conceive a child supernaturally through the holy work of the Spirit. And then what we see at the end of this passage is that she unconditionally trusted God with her life and her destiny. I'm going to say it like this. When we think of heroes of the faith, we should think of Mary. She's one of those heroes of the faith whose name could be in Hebrews chapter 11 in the hall of fame of faith. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. In other words, Gabriel, whatever God says, I accept. Whatever he says, that's fine with me. Through God's grace in her life, think about it, this poor peasant girl responds to God's work with greater faith than his priest who's serving him in the temple in Jerusalem. (laughs) It's amazing. And we're going to study this more. Uh, In a couple of weeks, we're going to come back to Luke, and we're going to look at her song, and we're going to dig into this aspect of her life a little bit more. But for now, let's go on and and see what this uh, origin story teaches us about Jesus. Two important things in this passage, I think, as we look at them. First, as God in the flesh... Jesus is God's salvation. Verse 31, you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Now, last week, we saw that John the Baptist would be great before the Lord in that prophecy. But Jesus' greatness is different. His greatness is the greatness of God himself. He will be great, Gabriel says, full stop. No qualifications, no descriptors, no add-on phrases like we read with John the Baptist. Just simply, he will be great. You see, in the Old Testament, greatness without any qualifications belongs to God alone. Gabriel's making a statement here about the deity of Jesus Christ. And then in case we miss it, he goes on and says his title will be Son of the Most High, which identifies him as the divine son, the second person of the Trinity. His name will be Jesus. Yeshua, Joshua. We just got done going through the book of Joshua this last spring and summer. Joshua, the name means God saves or the Lord is salvation. Church humanity cannot save itself. We need a savior who is with us in one sense, but he is outside of us from the outside in another sense. And this is who Jesus is as the divine son who takes on flesh and then walks among us so that he can save us from our sins. This, these opening verses is where Luke begins for the first time to hint at the deity of Christ and his ministry and the success of chapters. You know, every origin story gives you a glimpse that then helps you to understand the later action. Here he gives us the first glimpse of Jesus' deity and and the necessity of it. And then secondly, he points out that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies and promises. 
There's over 300 prophecies and promises in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfills. There's an entire category of them that relate to the Davidic covenant, and that's what Gabriel references here. Verse 32, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. There are all kinds of prophecies about the coming Messiah. For example, Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 says that the virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son and his name will be called what? Emmanuel, God with us. All kinds of prophecies. But there's a whole category of them that relate to God's promise to King David. You know, God promised David that he would have an heir who would one day sit upon an eternal throne who would rule over all of the earth. And this is what Gabriel's referring to. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The Israelites were expecting this Messiah Now, they had twisted the understanding of it, but there were these rich passages like Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's father, and so this is the line of David. And a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And then these verses continue to talk about how the leopard will lay down with the lamb. Death and sickness will be abolished. That the the innocent children can play with lions. They can put their hands in the holes of the adder or sit on the nest of a cobra and not be afraid of death and being bitten and illness And then in verse 9, the prophecy says, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, all violence wiped out once and for all. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is Jesus. Not only is he God in the flesh who is our Savior, he is the fulfillment of all the prophecies and promises that God made to the saints of the old covenant. He is that eternal King David who will one day return and sit and reign forever and ever on an eternal throne. And Luke is going to develop this. He's going to introduce later a tagline, a title for Jesus, the Son of Man. And this is our first hint that this is who we're dealing with in this story. Well, so what? How does all of this apply to us? I would first suggest to you that we should take note of what this says about God and his grace. That God's grace is available for anyone who is humble and lowly in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, we will read from Jesus in a few chapters from now. It is so vital for us, if we're going to have a right relationship with God, it starts with us understanding who we are in light of God's greatness and holiness. If you're new to our church, you should understand 
that we rejoice in being the sons and daughters of God. We've been created in his image. Every human being has inherent dignity because we're created in the image of God. But every single human being has a common affliction and problem. We are born desperate sinners, radically corrupted by sin's presence in our lives. That corruption is so radical that it is impossible for us to earn God's grace. That's why Mary is a receiver of the grace, not an earner of the grace because of her innate goodness, because Mary was no better, no more sinless than you and I. We're all born in need of this grace. But the great thing about this story is that it tells us God's grace is available to anyone who is humble and lowly in spirit. And so this morning, if you need God's grace, if you reject self-reliance, if you reject this view that we are presented that you know, we're all good, really awesome people who deserve this kind of life, that we reject that pride and self-reliance and say to God, I am your creation. I need your grace because I'm a sinner. I can't earn it. In other words, to say it another way, if you want a relationship with God, a right relationship with God, it starts by having a right perspective on who you are. Because if you come to God for a relationship with a wrong perspective of who you are, then you're going to skew that relationship. You're going to make it about yourself. You're going to make it about performance. You're going to make it about works righteousness rather than what God says about it. So each and every one of us need to be encouraged with this passage to, to look at ourselves. Do we have a healthy view of ourselves? Am I, am I humble? Am I poor in spirit? Am I calling out for God's grace because I'm desperate for it? Do I acknowledge I don't deserve it? If God were just simply to look at my life and the ways that I do sin, he, he doesn't have to give it to me. It's his gift. You need to make that point this morning. For some of you, you've yet to trust in Christ. And this passage applies to you because it is an invitation for you to trust in the one who God has provided for salvation. As God, Jesus is God's salvation for anyone who will call upon him. Anyone who will trust in him, who sees themselves the way the scriptures say, a sinner who needs God's grace, incapable of earning heaven, incapable of earning his favor, but through Jesus, I can become a loved son and daughter of God. So here's my question for all of you this morning. This passage applies. It should be asked, have you received Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? Have you committed your life to him? Is he your Lord? Third application. There's a motivator here in this passage. Christian, I want you to think about the magnitude of Gabriel's declaration and how it applies to us this morning. For nothing is impossible with God. I mean, think about that for a moment. God's love for us and his will to save us is so great and so absolute that he reordered the laws of his own creation in order to accomplish it. 
Think about that. The magnitude of God's love for you. That he'll say, I know this is how creation works. I set it up. But I'm God. I'm reordering it. So that you can be saved. And you can become his son and daughter. That speaks to an infinite love for us from our Father. This speaks to incredible, absolute, eternal power to bring it about. I was especially blessed this week by Philip Ryken's meditation on this simple statement of God's sovereign power and how he exerts it for our benefit out of his love for us. He writes, this is a verse to live by, the verse that with God nothing is impossible. This is a verse to live by. Is there anything in your life that seems impossible? Perhaps it seems impossible for your great sin to be forgiven, especially after all the times you have tried to not do it, and again and again you have failed. Perhaps it seems impossible for your family to be restored after all the heartbreak and for joy to come into your family again. Perhaps, maybe it seems impossible for your physical and financial needs to be met, or for your work, or for your studies, or for your ministry to succeed. It may seem impossible to endure the suffering that has come into your life, or for someone whom you love to come to Christ. But the Bible says nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. He is the God of the virgin birth. There's no sin he cannot forgive. There's no relationship he cannot reconcile. No problem he cannot resolve. No need he cannot meet. No ministry he cannot bless. No grief he cannot comfort. No life he cannot reclaim. No sinner he cannot save. The God of the virgin birth is the God who makes all things possible. So what is it in your life this morning that seems impossible? This origin story says, take it to God. Bring it to God again and again and again and watch how he works. May this week, the Holy Spirit pour out his grace upon you and pound this simple truth into the core of your soul. And may, whatever you're facing, may this fill you with God's power and the assurance of his love for you. Amen? Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for how you have moved within time and space, reordering the laws of creation itself so that you could redeem us and bring a people to yourself and restore this fallen world to its perfect glory. Lord Jesus, we look forward to that day. We cry together, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And Father, we would ask that today would be a day of incredible grace upon the person here who may not know Jesus as Lord and Savior. May this be a day where you open eyes and hearts, where there is a yearning, to receive forgiveness and the grace that comes through Jesus alone. 
May this be a day of salvation for some in this church this morning. And may it be a day of comfort and encouragement and strength for those who already believe. For you are the God who does the impossible. And we glorify you for it. Amen.